0: Well, friends, in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says, among other things, these words in verses 22 and 23, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, now take note, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. From the divine standpoint, Jesus died according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God put Jesus on the cross, and Jesus knew that. He knew that he had come to die. The Son of Man did not come to be served but the servant to give his life a ransom for many and so from the divine side christ's death was planned and carried out according to the will of god the will the plan arranged between the father and the son in eternity past but from a human standpoint peter says you nailed him to a cross by the hands of wicked men godless men you see, without violating human responsibility or, or the freedom of moral choice, God brought about the death of his son by means of human instruments who acted freely according to the dictates of their own hearts. They crucified Jesus. Now, as we come back to our study in the Gospel of Mark, and I would ask you to turn, please, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, we're going to see a renewed hostility to Jesus Christ from the religious leaders of the Jews. This hostility would lead in a year's time to his death. These Jewish leaders would be one of the instruments God uses to crucify the Son of God. They would use the Romans, but it was their plot, their plan to put Jesus to death. Now, in the course of his ministry... The enemies of Jesus brought three charges against him, three categories. On the one hand, they accused him of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. We saw that back in chapter 3. You're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Well, that was one charge. Another charge was that he claimed to be a king. He claimed to be God for the Pharisees. That was blasphemy, that you, being a man, make yourself equal with God From the Sadducees' standpoint, they were more the political liberals. They were more concerned that by claiming to be a king, Jesus would put himself forth as a rival to Caesar, and the Romans would clamp down all the more on the Jewish people. And, of course, that was the charge that eventually got Jesus crucified, that he's claiming to be a king and a rival to Caesar. But the third and final charge that was brought against Jesus during his earthly ministry was that he was a sinner, he was a sinner. In John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man, and in the dialogue that follows between the blind man and the religious leaders, we read this in John 9, 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he's not, he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? So they accused him of being a sinner because he didn't keep the law of God and he didn't encourage others to keep the law of God. Well, it is that charge that is made against him here in Mark 7. Your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 7, and it is the charge here that Jesus is not keeping the law. You see, if they can charge Jesus with being a lawbreaker, violating the law of God, and encouraging others to do so, they could label him as a sinner and write him off as someone who is not of God. That's the accusation here that Jesus is not obeying the law. Follow as I read our text, Mark 7, 1 to 13. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen some of his disciples were eating with bread, uh, eating their bread, sorry, with impure hands that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he, Jesus, said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and or mother, is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is uh, to say, given to God, you no longer permit permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your traditions, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. This is a controversy, over defilement and tradition. And I'm going to have three points the incident that provo- provides the occasion for this controversy, the inquiry that provokes the controversy, and then the indictment with which Jesus addresses the controversy. First, the incident, the occasion for the controversy. First, verse one says that we see the arrival of the Pharisees and the scribes noted. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Now, notice it says some of the scribes. Commentators speculate that maybe they chose some of the cream of the crop to match wits against Jesus. Jesus was no small adversary. So maybe they chose some of the more expert, skilled scribes to send on this occasion. We know that they were sent not with a good purpose, but with a hostile purpose. Who were these groups, the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, the Pharisees were a sect of the Jews who were very strict in their outward observance of the law. In fact, their very name, Pharisee, comes from the Greek word that means to be separated. They were the separated ones. Now, historically, they had a good purpose. Historically, the Pharisaic sect arose with a good purpose. They wanted to protect the law of God against the encroachment from pagan Greek culture. And so they built a wall around the Word of God, a hedge around the law, by which they told how the laws were to be obeyed in minute detail. Unfortunately, however, that originally righteous concern became perverted the pharisees became more concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law and their religion turned into a hollow formalism a traditionalism a self-righteousness and a man-pleasing showiness you know from reading the Gospels how they made these long public prayers to impress people. They gave alms visibly so other people could see how generous they were. They enjoyed wearing fancy religious clothing in the marketplaces. They loved to soak up respectful greetings. Oh, rabbi, rabbi. Their religion was purely horizontal. It had everything to do with pleasing and impressing people And there was nothing happening in a godward vertical direction those those were the pharisees started out good but became perverted the scribes were the professional students of the mosaic law they studied the law they interpreted the law and they taught the law to the people they essentially transmitted the traditions or of the revered rabbis from one generation to another Uh, The most prominent of the scribes were members of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Most of the scribes were Pharisees. So these men, these two groups now gather around Jesus, and they've come from Jerusalem. Now, that's significant. Jerusalem was headquarters of the Jewish religion. Down at headquarters, they had been watching Jesus very suspiciously. And they were alert to the fact that Jesus was gathering a big following. He was becoming more and more dangerous. So what are they going to do? They're going to send some of their big guns from headquarters to confront Jesus, try to provoke a controversy with him, those who are more prominent than just the local Pharisees. So certain Pharisaic bigwigs, certain choice scribes are sent from headquarters to try to provoke Jesus in a controversy. So, then we see the behavior of the disciples that is observed by these religious leaders. They come, and they're looking to find something against Jesus, and they find it. They find fuel for the fire of controversy. They notice, look at verse 2, and these Pharisees and scribes, after coming from Jerusalem, they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Aha! His disciples are eating with unwashed hands, Now, let me say something to the children, especially you boys. This doesn't mean that they they had dirty hands. You know how it is. You're playing outside. You're riding your bike. You're playing in the dirt. You're handling frogs or toads. And you come in for dinner. And what does your mother say? Wash your hands. Have you washed your hands? Why? Because your mother knows that from being outside playing with togs and toads and frogs and working and playing in the dirt, your hands may have germs that might get into the food that get into your body and you get sick. So you're supposed to wash your hands. That's not what this is talking about. It wasn't like they were eating with dirty hands and Jesus to say needed to say to hey guys wash your hands before you eat. It wasn't that kind of unclean. It was a ceremonial uncleanness. It was the kind of uncleanness that Peter refers to in Acts 10, 14, when God presents that, that um, sheet with unclean animals, and Peter says, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. It's not physically unclean. It's ceremonially unclean. At another place, you can look at Luke 11, 37 39, Jesus himself was accused of eating with impure hands. So, the issue of washing hands before eating, that provides the opportunity for this controversy. Now, let me give you a little background about this Pharisaic practice. In fact, Mark explains it to us. Verses 3 and 4, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders— And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Notice, the uncleanness here is not physical uncleanness. It is ceremonial. In fact, the word that describes how they wash their hands Is a greek word which means with the fist apparently according to the tradition they were to take one hand with a fist and and wash the other hand and then vice versa now what is the root of this practice verse 3 tells us notice thus observing the traditions of the elders this practice came not from the bible but from the elders from the tradition Now, does the Bible in the Old Testament talk about washing? Yes, it does. There are various washings. If you touch a dead body or if if you come into contact with um, an unclean discharge of the body, there were washings prescribed. In the tabernacle and temple, there was a laver filled with water where the priests might, might wash themselves. But here's the point. God's law, the Bible, never prescribed ceremonial washing for the Jews before they ate. This practice came not from the word of God, but from the elders. It was part of one of the many traditions that the rabbis had developed. It's called the halakha. The halakha is that body of literature which deals with the discussion of the rabbis about how to, you know, obey the particular laws of Moses— and it says here in the text, they held fast to these traditions. They went beyond the word of God, and they made their own man-made rules and traditions. And verse 4 says that this was just a sample of the large body of traditions that they followed. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. They might come into contact with a Gentile and need to cleanse themselves. That was not in the Bible. That was not in the law of Moses. That was in man-made Tradition, and there are many other things which they have received, passed from hand to hand in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. What all these rules had in common, and here's the main point, is they have their source not in the Bible, not in the law of Moses, but in the traditions of the elders. So the incident that provides occasion for this controversy was these religious leaders say, look at the disciples, say, you're eating with ceremonially unclean hands, contrary to the tradition of the elders of the rabbis. Now, let's see the actual inquiry that provokes the controversy. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, there's an assumption there. The assumption is that this rule is binding on their consciences. This has binding authority. Why aren't they following the tradition of the elders? Because this has binding power. This has authority. With regard to that particular tradition, it was especially strong because the two leading rabbis agreed. The two leading rabbis in Israel at the time were um, uh, Shammai and Hillel, and they often disagreed. If you remember Matthew 19, they had different views of divorce. One was more strict and one was more lenient. But on this point, they agreed. Both Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai agreed, you've got to wash your hands ceremonially in this way with the fist before you eat. So the assumption is this is a binding authority. Why aren't your disciples doing that? Not only is there an assumption, there's an insinuation that by not following that rule, by not following that tradition, your disciples are wrong. They're sinning. They are guilty. And so we have the incident that provides occasion for this controversy. They see these guys not eating, not following the tradition of the elders and eating With impure hands and the inquiry that really provokes the controversy is why are they doing that how are you allowing this Jesus third we want to see the indictment with which Jesus addresses the controversy Jesus is not going to defend his disciples he's going to go on the offense he's going to go on the offensive against these accusers He's going to give their fundamental problem. He's going to name it, he's going to explain it, and then he's going to illustrate it. Notice, their fundamental problem named. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. He names their problem. What is it? It's the H word. It's hypocrisy. Now, our English word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word hypocrites, and I'll tell you what it means. The word hypo, the the Greek preposition hypo, means under. A hypodermic needle is a needle that goes under your skin. Don't you love it, right? (laughs) But it does. It's a hypo. Hypo, hyper is above. Hypo is below. A hype and it's it's hypocrites. It was the word used of an actor in a Greek play, and those actors would wear a mask. Have you ever seen pictures of that big mask that that the actors would wear? So here's a guy, and he's got a big, smiley-faced mask. Now, behind that mask, the guy might be sweating, he might be fretting, he might be the saddest person in the world, but what you see is this big, smiley, happy face. He's wearing a mask. And Jesus says, "That's what the problem is with you Pharisees. You're Hippocrates, you're hypocrites. You're wearing a mask. You're projecting something on the outside that you're not on the inside. You're pretending to appear as something that you're really not. So He names their problem. Your problem is hypocrisy. And then their fundamental problem explained in verses six to nine. He's going to unpack this accusation of hypocrisy. Six to nine. He said to them, Rightly did prof- Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. How does he explain their hypocrisy? He says, this is your basic problem. This is why you're hypocrites. Because even though you draw near to me with your lips, your heart is far from me. You purport to be religious leaders. You wear religious garments. You have religious training. You display on the outside that you're worshipers of God. You use religious words. You use holy words but those holy words are coming from a hollow heart, a heart that is far away from God. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. What's the problem? They have lips that worship, but they have a heart that is far away from God. And the language he uses here is rather strong. Well, because their hearts are far away from God, It's a small step to the next problem. Because you have hearts that are far away from God, what do you do? In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. If your heart is pushing God away, you don't want to hear what God has to say, right? If you don't like somebody, you don't care much about what they have to say, do you? You don't care much for their opinion. And because their heart was far away from God, they didn't care about what God had to say. And so and yet they wanted to be religious. They wanted to put on a front that they were godly, spiritual men. So what do you do? When your heart hates God and you're pushing God away, but you want to appear religious, the solution is, you substitute the precepts and rules of men for the word of God. That's what they were doing. And the language here is strong. It says in verse 8 that they were neglecting the commandment of God. The Greek word is aphiami. That word is used to describe what God does with your sins. It's the word that is translated forgiveness. What does God do when he forgives your sins? He sends them away. He buries them in the deepest sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far shall your transgressions be removed from you. When God affia me your sins, he sends them away. That's what they were doing with the word of God. They were sending away the word of God. You see, adopting the traditions of men begins with pushing away the word of God. In verse 9, he further says, you nicely set aside... You nicely set aside the commandment of God. And Jesus is using irony here. We saw how Paul is sometimes ironic and a little sarcastic. Jesus, there is a holy sarcasm. And Jesus is saying, you nicely, my translation said, you're experts in setting aside the word of God. You know, the Greek word is kalos, and it means you beautifully set aside the word of God. You are really good at setting aside the Word of God. You're experts at setting aside the Word of God. So they set aside, they push away the Word of God, and yet they want to appear religious. So what do they do? They substitute the traditions and rules of men. Now, their fundamental problem illustrated you're hypocrites. And you're hypocrites because all your religion is in your mouth. You draw near to God with your lips, but your heart is far away from God. You push away his word, and you substitute your own rules and traditions. And then he further illustrates it in verses 10 to 13. Four, he's showing how you exalt tradition over the word of God. He says, "For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother, is to be put to death. But you say if a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that it would help you is korban," that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your traditions, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. He's going to illustrate another way that they exalt tradition over the word of God. Now let me explain this. And um Mark is writing to Gentiles, so as earlier, he has to explain these things to Gentiles who wouldn't understand these Jewish practices. The word of God toward our parents says, according to the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. It also says, and he cites here um, uh, Exodus twenty-one seventeen: he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. It may read, he who curses father or mother shall be put to death. God is very concerned, children, that you honor your parents. He is so concerned about it that he states it positively and he states it negatively. Children, honor your father and mother. You know what that word honor means? Treat them as weighty. They are heavyweights. They're not lightweights. Honor your father and mother. Then he says it negatively. If you speak evil of father and mother, if you did that under the old covenant, you'd be put to death. God is concerned that we honor father and mother. Now, that's multifaceted. It begins with your heart honoring them, but it may involve, when they get older, helping them out physically, materially, uh, helping them out financially. But here's what the Jews cleverly did to get around the law of God. They said, you as a son or daughter could say to your parents— The money that I wanted to give to you to help you, I have declared korban. That means gift or offering in Hebrew. I've devoted it to God. Now, according to the law, they didn't actually have to give it to the temple, but they could no longer give it for the original purpose for which it was intended. How clever. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Uh, The money that I wanted to give to you, I've given to God but they didn't really have to give it to the temple. That's why they get to keep the money and not help their parents according to the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, you play games like that to get around the word of God. You make your own traditions, your own laws to push away the word of God and yet to appear religious by setting up your own rules. And by that, you invalidate the word of God. And so, here are these Jewish leaders trying to trap Jesus, get him to be seen as a lawbreaker. And they see him doing something that's contrary to their tradition. And they call out the disciples and Jesus on that. Jesus doesn't defend them, he goes on the offense. And he indicts these accusers. And he says, You have a problem. You're hypocrites, you're play actors, you're presenting to be on the outside what you're not on the inside, like the Greek actor with the big smiley face who's sweating and fretting underneath the mask. And he explains it further, you're hypocrites because your hearts are far away from God. All your religion is in your mouth, You, you speak religious words, but your heart is far away from God. Another expression of your hypocrisy, because your heart is far away from God, you push his word far away. You don't want to have anything to do with his word, so you send his word away. You neglect his word. But because you want to appear religious, you have to do some religious things. So you substitute your own traditions, your own laws, your own rules in the place of the word of God. And then he illustrates it with this Korban practice. Note two things about this hypocritical traditionalism. And that's what the Jews were guilty of. Hypocritical traditionalism. They were substituting the traditions of men, the rules of the rabbis, the elders, in the place of the word of God. Note two things about this hypocritical traditionalism. First of all, how relatively easy is man made religion when man invents religion it's always easy religion man's precepts will always be easier than god's easier on the flesh that is a man made religion may have a lot of rules a lot of oddning do i say they may be tedious but they will never touch the flesh, the sinful heart. When man makes up his own religious precepts and traditions, he will take care to insulate and protect him from what he hates, namely God and God's word. The religious rules of men will employ his hands, his feet, his nose, his eyes, his taste buds, but will never touch his heart, because the whole reason he makes these rules is because his heart is far away from God. When I was in the Roman Catholic Church, I knew nothing of repentance, but I knew about penance. So I'd go in and confess my sins to the priest. I wouldn't tell him the deep things in my heart. I'd make up some superficial things, and he'd give me penance. He might say, Say, 10 Our Fathers and 15 Hail Marys. I go out into the auditorium. I kneel down. I say, Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. One. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou amongst women. Blessed thy thou. And I just click them off. And I did my penance. It never touched my heart in repentance. Repentance is the vomit of the soul. Repentance is acknowledging I'm a wretched, filthy sinner in the sight of God. And, and I need cleansing from sin if I'm going to be spared hell. Penance is far different from Repentance. So when man makes up a way to get rid of your sin, it's always easier than God's way. And the second thing about man-made religion, not only is it easy, it's condemnable. It's damnable because it's doable. You see, the reason that people invent religious traditions is because their heart is far away from God. And yet they have a consciousness of God A knowledge of God and they want to appear religious and so they make up a religion that is doable for them and that's damnable let me give an illustration as a father when I wanted to teach my children, my sons in particular, how to play baseball when they were little toddlers I did this I got them a big bongo bat about four inches in diameter. And the biggest wiffle ball I could find, again, maybe four inches in diameter. Do you do this, fathers? And then I throw the ball in a way I try to hit the bat. And when it hits the bat, I, I, I applaud and say, good job. And the little guy sitting there, you know, what did I do? But I want to encourage him, right? Big bongo bat with a big wiffle ball. You did it. But suppose as a father, I would go to a, baseball diamond and I would put my little guy at home plate and I put a 34 inch Louisville slugger on his shoulder and then I would get 60 feet and six inches away and if I could throw a 90 mile an hour fastball at my little guy with the big bat on his shoulder until he cried daddy I can't do that and then I responded you're right kid you're no good You'll never make it in baseball. That would be horrible fathering, wouldn't it? But in the religious realm, let me make the parallel and reverse things. What the Pharisees were doing with their religion is they were lobbing wiffle balls at one another. They were making the law external, traditional, so that they could keep it. So they can boast in the fact that I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer because they externalized the law. I wash my hands before I eat, so I'm good. They were throwing wiffle balls at one another with a big bongo bat. And you know what Jesus does in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus puts a 34-inch Louisville slugger on their shoulders, gets 60 feet, 6 inches away, and throws 100-mile-an-hour fastballs and say, hit this. Why? not because he's a bad father, but because he's a loving savior, but because he wants to get them to say, I can't do that. You say, if I just lust after a woman, I've committed adultery. You just say, if I just hate a person, I'm I'm guilty of a murder. I can't do that. That's exactly where Jesus wants them to be because he loves them. and He wants them to say, I can't do that so that they will rely upon him who hit the 100-mile-an-hour fastball out of the park time and time again. You see, what's damnable about man-made traditional religion is it's doable. It's doable. The religion that saves is not a religion of doing. It's a religion of done. Jesus did it. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die Christianity is not the religion of doing, doing, to earn. It's the religion of done. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. And because man-made religion is a religion of doing, they never get to Romans 3.23, where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, they never get to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The religion of the Pharisees, the religion of traditionalism, the religion of doing shields you from the religion of grace. And grace is the only thing that can save us, brothers and sisters. So, this man made religion is damnable because it's doable. The religion of God is not doable. The law of God is not doable. We can't do the law, but Jesus did it for us. That's the gospel. Let me make a few applications, and then we'll be finished. From this passage, we certainly learn that one may be very religious and still hate God. Isn't that one of the lessons we take away from the religious Pharisees and scribes in the New Testament? Religion coming out their eyeballs, very religious, and yet in their hearts they hated God. Jesus said, your heart is far away from me but they're not unique in human history. The Bible teaches that the natural condition of every one of us when we're born into this world is that of enmity and hostility toward God. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and the heart is the center of our being. It comprehends our mind, our will, our affections, and at the very core of our being, we are deceitful and we are wicked. In Romans 3, Paul Concludes his arguments against the human race by saying there's none who understands, there's none righteous, there's none who seeks for God. In Romans 8, Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is at enmity toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God, neither can it. In Colossians one twenty one, Paul says to these now Christians, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, we're all born with our backs turned toward God. We're all born hostile to God. But you know, there's more than one way to show our hostility to God. There's a younger brother way to show our hostility to God. Remember the younger brother in the parable? He thumbed his nose at his father, who represented God, and said, I don't care one whit about you. I'm going off on my own. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to indulge my own lusts and my own pleasures and my own passions. I'm going to break every law. It doesn't matter. There are younger brother sinners who flout the moral law of God and defy it, but probably more people live at enmity toward God by hiding behind the cloak of religion. These religious leaders who opposed Jesus were typical of people in every generation who draw near with their lips, but their heart is far away from him. Friends, one of the basic lessons we need to learn as Christians, and let me put it this way, not all that glitters religiously is spiritual gold. Right? Not all that glitters spiritually is spiritual gold. A lot of it is fool's gold. You know, in recent years we have seen some prominent Christian leaders, Christian men who have either denied the faith or proven to be hypocrites. That should shock us, but it shouldn't shake us because you can be religious and still not know God. You can be religious and hate God. We have TV preachers and evangelists who wear their multi-thousand-dollar suits and live on big estates and travel in their jets and try to build people out of money. We need to understand that religious profession Religious Bible talk is not the measure of genuineness. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Paul said the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but power. The profession of Christianity does not always mean the possession of new life in Christ. But then another application, learn at least one way that the depraved human heart runs and hides from God, and that is man-made religion right? Some show their rebellion by out-and-out out, flouting of the moral law. But one of the ways the depraved human heart hides from God and runs from God is man-made religion. See, man is incurably religious. We can't help but being religious. Why? Because God has put eternity in our hearts. We know there's a God by the creation and by conscience, we know that there's a moral law that is absolute. And we know that we have broken that law. Man knows he is guilty. He knows that there is a judgment to come that he needs to be prepared for. So man is incurably religious, but by nature, he hates God. So what do you do when you know there's a God, you know there's a judgment, you're going to stand before, and yet you hate God? Well, what you do is you invent religion. And so we have a plethora of religions in the world. Every one of them, take it to the bank, is a form of self-salvation. None of them is a religion of grace. Why? Because our hearts are religious, but they're proud. I don't want to submit to grace and say I can do nothing to save myself. The pride of man insists, I need to do something, I need to contribute something to my own salvation. And so we're religious, but we're proud, and so we invent all kinds of religion. Every one of them is a form of self-salvation. You can take this, this to the bank as well. Every form of cultic perversion of Christianity, same thing. Every cult of Christianity denies the deity of Christ, and denies that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, there's always an element of something I can do because of the pride of man. Why do we have large religious institutions that call themselves Christians, Christian, but where man's traditions have choked out the word of God? They substituted visual images, statues, candles, holy garments, holy water, magical bread that makes you clean from sin, magical rituals like um, say so many Our Fathers and Hail Marys and you'll be forgiven. It's because people are religious, but they hate God, and they don't want to submit to God's way of salvation, which is by grace through faith. Why do so many in our day want to have a mystical experience, which will also elevate them to this high level of spirituality? I thought of the phrase the other day, one-stop religious shopping. You just have this experience, and you don't have to wrestle with God and his word and sanctification. Why do some people prefer to worship in an atmosphere where it's very entertaining and there's glitz and glamour and there's bells and whistles because they really aren't desiring God and his presence with a simple heartfelt worship? They want the glitz and the glamour and the bells and the whistles because they're religious, but their heart is really far away from God. Man-made religion, like that of the Pharisees, can be impressive to the senses, but it can also be like a lead shield that keeps the x-rays of God's truth from penetrating the heart. Finally, though, we learn from this passage, we have a hint of the secret of true heart religion, don't we? What does God want? God wants worship from the heart. That's the problem. You draw near to me with your lips, but your heart... The center of your being is far away from me. What worship does God want? He wants worship from the heart. That begins with a new heart. By nature, our hearts are running away from God, hiding from God. We need a new heart. Thankfully, that's what God does in the new birth. He gives us a new heart. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new You know that you've become a new creation and you have a new heart when you have repented or turned away from every other form of salvation, every form of self-salvation, and you have lifted up the empty hands of faith and said, God, be gracious to me, the sinner. Save me by the blood of your son. When you've repented and believed in Jesus, then you know that you've received a new heart in the new birth. That's where true religion begins. But true religion must continue in our lives as Christians by having our hearts continually reformed by the word of God. Unlike the Pharisees who pushed away the word of God, neglected, set aside, negated, nullified the word of God and replaced it with tradition, we need to be all about the word of God. We need to reference God's word, need to read it, Feed on it. We need to let it do its work of convicting us, humbling us, and then leading us to the Savior for fresh forgiveness and leading us in the path of ongoing holiness and sanctification. His word is truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I end where we began this morning. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching reproof correction reproof correction training in righteousness let's pray father thank you for your word that it is true thank you that you have delivered many of us from religion that was empty and hollow we drew near with our lips but our hearts were far away from you thank you for visiting us with your grace and giving us the new birth and giving us a love for your word. Help us to love your word, to heed your word, to read it, to meditate upon it, to continue in it, that it might continue to do its work, that our lives might be pleasing to you. Thank you for your written word. Thank you, above all, for the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, our only Savior and hope. We thank you in his name.